131. Psalm 131, the shortest psalm that has the hardest lesson to teach us on how we can cultivate godly contentment. So Psalm 131, and follow along as I read this psalm, Psalm 131 from the New American Standard Bible. Psalm 131. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. It's quite easy to be discontented in this life. We live in the southeast part of the Mindanao Islands in the Philippines, and our neighbors seem to have a very noisy rooster. Roosters are quite common in the Philippines. Uh, they use them for fighting competitions, so they actually uh, prep up the roosters to be active. So this rooster constantly crowed. It didn't re know the time of the day or the day of the week, or it just kept crowing 24 by 7. I thought, what can one noisy rooster do to one's sleep? And I was wrong after a few weeks of discontentment. I finally got the noisiest fan from our garage or from our kind of basement room and then just kind of put it so that it would give the noise I needed to drown the noise of the rooster. And then I realized that my wife was freezing because... <laughs> can't have an industrial size fan focused on both of us, and we also had a wall air conditioning unit. So, so anyway, we decided to get rid of the fan and purchase something really small, white noise-making machine that keeps the noise up. But you can see what we must do just to drown outside noise, and sometimes it is easier to drown the outside noise coming into our lives. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the inside noise which is in your hearts, which comes because of discontentment. Our proud self-will generates more noise in our minds than any supercharged rooster can do. And we need to cultivate godly contentment with childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that enjoys complete rest and security, rather than follow the arrogant and ambitious approach to the needs and desires of our lives. Living our lives as disciples of Christ, especially in the last few years, have been hard. I was just sharing with Brian that we lost many in our church because of COVID and COVID-related complications. Death, sickness, masks, face shields. Yes, we wore face shields in a hot and humid country for a year and a half because of government restrictions. And then you had vaccinations, no vaccinations. Uh, and now the inflation, we come back and we look at, go to the grocery store and we look and see, and we look at the gas prices. 
discontentment can easily creep in back into our lives. We may not be able to control many, if not most, of these circumstances and the noise level the world generates around us. But as disciples of Christ, we can control the noise levels within us. And that's what this psalm talks about, and I want to bring to your attention this morning. So if you're back in Psalm 131, we want to learn from David, who was the author of this psalm, a man after God's own heart, and how to quiet our own hearts on the inside. David will teach us what he has learned from the Lord himself, that true and lasting contentment comes from a growing and an abiding trust in God. David has learned to be content, and he will challenge us to be content and how to cultivate it in our lives. So today I want to bring to your mind three lessons we can learn on godly contentment from Psalm 131. Three lessons from Psalm 131. Let me give them to you up front. Number one, godly contentment results in a life of humility. Godly contentment results in a life of humility. This is from verse 1, and this is the result of someone who has cultivated godly contentment. And in verse 2, we learn godly contentment is learned from trusting Christ fully. This is the process by which we gain godly contentment. In verse 2. And then the third lesson is from verse 3. Godly contentment leads others to hope in Christ's coming. This is the reason God wants us to cultivate godly contentment, is to bring that hope of Christ to others. Now, you and I know that the Psalms have been the ancient hymnal of Israel with one central theme of worship. Worship is the personal response of a believer of Jesus Christ to the person and work of God. And we know that Psalm 131 is in the fifth book. The Psalms were collected, Ezra collected these books. And Psalm 131 falls in book five of this collection. And if you look at the superscription of the Psalm, it says, A Song of a Sense of David. Often when I go to churches, that superscription is not read. That is part of the Psalms. That is part of the Psalms in the Hebrew text. So a song of a sense of David. Now Psalm 120 to 134, this whole section, if you can just flip a few pages back in your Bibles, uh, you should see that same heading. Some say a song of a sense. For example, Psalm 120. Some say a song of a sense of David. Psalm 122, 24, 131, 133. Some say a song of a sense of Solomon. And some don't put the name of the author. So we're not sure exactly who wrote 10 of these anonymous psalms. But we know that tradition says that these 15 were collected and compiled by Ezra and put into our Bibles in a sense. Now, if you look at the word ascent, it talks about moving upward, gaining altitude, going up to Jerusalem. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 16.16 16 required that every Jewish male, 
three times a year, went up to celebrate three key feasts, and he was supposed to go without going empty-handed. And Jewish pilgrims, when they traveled to these festivals, they often traveled in large groups. You never traveled alone, for the danger was significant in your journeys to Jerusalem. So when they traveled, they traveled with their families, their children, sometimes the whole community would travel up. And as they traveled up the winding road to Jerusalem, up to the temple, these were their songs of worship. They sang these songs as they traveled up to Zion. So these 15 psalms are a kind of congregational songs that were sung by these believers in Yahweh as they went up, all the way up to Zion, to the temple, to worship the Lord during these three festivals. And these three annual pilgrimages, from a good message by Phil Johnson, makes a perfect metaphor for the upward direction of spiritual growth that celebrates the development of godly virtues as a natural fruit of faith in the believer of Christ. So as we drop down to Psalm 131, we are transported to a place we can almost feel the quietness of David's soul. We can listen in to what is happening as David talks to the Lord. Here is someone with God's own heart who has learned to compose his inner man, and he invites us to do just the same. So let me read this once again, and I want you just to think through the words. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, or Yahweh, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Did you notice verses 1 and 2, David is speaking to God. And in verse 3, he's speaking to his audience. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And did you also notice from the text of this psalm, what David does not do is in verse 1. That's in the present. And in verse 2 is what David has done. That's in the past. And in verse 3, what God's people should do. That's in the future. So you can see this just by basic observation of the text. So let me walk you through the first lesson on lasting godly contentment. Is that godly contentment results in a life of humility. This is the result of someone who has cultivated godly contentment in his or her life. Those who trust in Christ are not proud and presumptuous, but are rather humble. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not proud. King James says haughty. The ESV says lifted up. Nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters. So here's what David is trying to do. He's trying to show what happens in our lives when we are living in humility. 
So he shows three areas of pride to examine in our lives, just from verse 1, to see if we are living in humility. And that's very obvious in the text, the three negations. The first is our attitude. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud. That's an attitude. Living in humility requires that we free ourselves from pride in our attitudes, in our heart. The heart is the seed of our pride, and our pride begins from that source. Now, there was a beautiful book I read on this psalm by David Paulison, Seeing with New Eyes. And he turns this psalm into an anti-psalm, into an opposite psalm. And here's how he puts it. Self, my heart is proud, I'm absorbed in myself, and my eyes are haughty, I look down on other people, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hope onto anything and everybody all the time. Isn't that so apropos? That's like our life. So verse 1 is a confession of a person who has dealt with this prideful heart. Who has dealt with this prideful heart and he has cultivated godliness, contentment. Now why do we need to speak to the Lord? Because he's the only one who knows the condition of our hearts. Our heart is where pride finds its refuge and tries to be in control of every thought or action overruling the will of God and its stubbornness. Scriptures teach us in Jeremiah 17 verse 9 that our heart is beyond all things deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then Jeremiah answers the question in verse 10. In Jeremiah 17 verse 10. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So we need to search our hearts, and in that search we need the Lord's help, we need wisdom from the Lord and his word taught by the Spirit of God. Now pride was an issue not only in the people, but the whole nation of Israel in Isaiah 30, and you can just turn there really quick. just want to point a few things out in Isaiah 30. The nation Israel went to Egypt for help when, they, when the Assyrians came. And look how the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance with Egypt, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. Verse 2. Skip down to verse 9. Actually, verse 7. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. And then verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Here's a nation and a testimony of Isaiah. A nation that has refused and stubbornly followed their own will. In verse 15, in repentance and rest, 
you will be saved. They needed to repent from their lack of trust in Yahweh. And then beautifully from verse 18, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. And here's the point I'm trying to make. If you and I lack humility, we're displaying a lack of contentment in our attitudes of our hearts and we're going to constantly fight our inner battles with pride as we try to defend our own pride and thus we will lack real peace. Here's a country, a nation, which God had called his own. It goes back to a, a more wicked nation from whom they were pulled out of slavery from for help. So living in humility requires that we free ourselves from pride in our attitudes and how we think. And second is our aspirations. You can see the second half of verse 1. Nor my eyes haughty. The eyes are the heart's windows to the soul. So the heart has desires and it sees it through the eyes into the world. This is how the heart sees the world. What the heart desires to look for, the eyes look to it. So the eyes are basically the instruments of the heart to look forward to things what the heart desires. These are what I would call aspirations. In Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19, and you can turn there if you'd like, the Lord focuses on six things the Lord hates. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, there are six things which the Lord hates. He has seven which are an abomination to him. And guess what's first on that list? Haughty eyes. Looking down on others. Having an arrogant aspiration of looking down on others and being selfishly ambitious. Not the kind of ambition God wanted or Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. My ambition is to please the Lord. Not that kind of ambition, but looking down on others. How do you know if you possess selfish aspirations? Ask yourself, do I seek after elevated places and places where I might gratify my own self-esteem? Do I look down upon others as being inferior to me? Charles Spurgeon wrote a beautiful quote on this verse. He said, when the heart is right... The eyes are right. The whole man is on the road to a healthy and happy condition. Let us take care that we do not use the language of this psalm unless indeed it be true as to ourselves. For, here's the warning, for there is no worse pride than that which claims humility when it does not possess it. A haughty heart shuts the door by which God's grace flows into our lives. In Psalm 138, verse 6, the psalmist writes, For though the Lord is high, or exalted, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. We must look to Christ. Let us pursue what God wants us to pursue. Let us pursue that with humility without looking down on others, and then we will be on the right track to cultivate contentment. 
Now, being on the mission field puts you in a position where you're working with other men and families, and you often tend to compare yourselves, right? For the good or bad reasons, you do that, and one of the lessons I've been learning is I need to look to Christ because I will stand before him to give an account of all that I have done. I will not stand before my colleague to give an account to him or to his superiors. I must have that as a conviction not to look down on the work of others or make comments on how they respond to situations which I might not respond to. Remember, we should not only think too highly of ourselves, but Paul taught us in Romans 12, verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So we need to have a right understanding of our aspirations, but that right understanding should not be to think more highly of himself than he ought to. Even in James, the first pastor of the very first church in Jerusalem says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Contentment is often linked to what we have or sometimes don't have, which in turn is based on what we can buy or what we cannot buy. Maybe we have forgotten what the author to the letter of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. Make sure your character is free from the love of money and being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So we must examine our life for our attitudes, the heart attitudes which creep up from our heart, then the aspiration, what we desire to see from our eyes, and then the end of verse 1, our actions. Look at Psalm 131, verse 1. Nor do I involve myself in great matters, the ESV says, with things too great, or in things too difficult for me. The third phase of our pride, it sits in the heart, it sees what it wants to see through our eyes, and then it wants to do things which focus on the self. Humility is knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing our capabilities, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and knowing where we stand in the heavenlies. We must turn our eyes from our distorted view of ourself to Christ, and that's what the emphasis made by David in this psalm. David himself waited 10 years as Saul reigned as the king of Israel. And then he waited seven more years in Hebron before he was sitting on the throne of Israel. This man had patience. He was content. His actions depicted that he waited on the Lord's timing. Saul, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Three men, examples scriptures give of those, especially Saul, he lost his kingdom because he did not obey the Lord and he took an action in 1 Samuel 13, 8-14. While they were losing the battle against the Philistines, he decided to go into the temple and burn incense, a responsibility not given to him but given to a priest. 
Uzziah did the same. Uzziah's great-grandson, Hezekiah, exactly the same. What David is saying in this verse is not that we should be unwilling to take on great challenges or be fearful when taking a challenge. There's nothing wrong with our willingness to do great things for the Lord. But what David is saying is that he does not continually go about being busy with grand things that others characteristically are involved with. Often our life is a reflection of the life of others. We see what others do and we try to replicate it without understanding the reasons why they have done it. Now what are the great things which David talks about at the end of verse 1? Well, they're not explicit here. So let me give you some suggestions. Things which may lead to great advances in your personal agenda. Maybe in the church or at your workplace. Tackling things so that you can be at the center stage of life or ministry. Making plans and acting on moving up the social ladder with others in your company or church. Doing things or showing that you're busy with doing things in your pride. You know, we do not control our day of birth, nor do we control the day the Lord takes us home. And COVID has emphasized the importance of our health. And oftentimes we get too fearful and we want to ensure that not, we don't get sick or we have complications, so we become obsessed with things which supposedly cause us to have immunity. And then we may fear that a nagging pain might be the only pain that takes us down and finally kills us. The Lord knows his own, and the Lord decides their time of leaving. Do you and I accept the limitations God has put on us? You know, one of our limitations on the mission field is um, we didn't choose that field. The Lord chose it for us. We chose to go to India. And the Lord kept us there for a few years, and then he moved us uh, pretty quick to another place where he has made us fruitful, but the Lord was so gracious in using us that he taught us how to rely upon his sovereign providence. Let me just take you to an example of our Lord himself. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, look at our Lord regarding to humility. And Philippians 2, 5-8 shows a step-by-step lowering of Christ in humility. He stepped down from God to being God-man, from God-man to a common slave, from a common slave to a cursed man who died on the cross. And then in Philippians 2, verses 6-8, presents the example of Christ as a chain of humility. You know, what we need is humble men and women serving in God's church and doing the work for which God has called us. Even in Matthew 24, verse 36, again we see the Lord's humility. He displayed humility and contentment in his incarnation when he trusted in his Father's will, accepting the limitations of his humanity and saying that he did not know the exact time of his second coming, but only God the Father did. And then he emphasized to, to his disciples to be faithful, to be watchful and focused on being prepared by trusting and obeying God. So, the first lesson on lasting 
Godly contentment is that it results in a life of humility. And then the second, you can see in verse 2, the second lesson on lasting godly contentment is that godly contentment is learned by trusting in Christ fully. Verse 2. Those who trust in Christ are secure in their faith. Look at what the ESV says in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The first word in verse 2 is best translated surely in the Hebrew text there. Uh, David is literally using the same language of an oath here. You can look at many other texts where he says, If I have not composed my soul, may God put the curses of the covenant upon me. So he's emphasizing that this process of contentment is essential for everyone who knows Yahweh. And for us as everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. David is bound and determined to wrestle down his unruly soul that has been acting as a child <clears throat> that has not been weaned. Now, biblical weaning, I did a study on that. You know, sometimes when you start preparing for a message, you just don't know how deep you will go or how you might get stuck. So I said, let me study biblical weaning. So I found out that weaning began at the age of three for Hannah and Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And then weaning was generally celebrated as Abraham did for Isaac in Genesis 21 verse 8. Now a nursing child who is not weaned is not fun to watch, right? I've seen so many children here and many of them are past, uh, getting to the age where they will be weaned. Have you ever tried carrying an unweaned baby that is hungry? Now, before a baby is weaned, the baby is placed on his mother's side. He squishes like jelly and he's in a heightened state of anxiety, wanting the next drop of his mother's milk. He frets, he fumes, he cries, he fusses, endlessly squirming to get his mother's milk. Now, weaning is a process, as you all know, of breaking down the child's dependence upon his mother to satisfy his desires. Because once a child is weaned, he has learned to trust his mother implicitly. Once a child has been weaned, his relationship with his mother blossoms into a loving affection. For her own sake, not for what she can give him. And this dramatic change has come about on this fussy child. And now this fussy child rests on his mother's lap, sitting quiet, contented, trusting his mother on the timing and the amount of food that his mother feeds him. This child has changed. He is weaned. And that's the point David is making, that you and I need to be spiritually weaned from ourselves to learn to trust in God. That's exactly the point David is making. A weaned child needs his mother's nearness and affection. That is a mark of growth and maturity in a, in a child. Do you think this has something to do with what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 3? Truly I say to you that unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The point made by David in this next phrase, like a weaned child is my soul within me, the second half of verse 2, 
just it's, it's a picture. He builds this word picture. Just think of your own soul sitting as a weaned small baby on your own lap. Before you were squirming inside as a small child was, demanding things from God, inwardly pouting and displaying childlike anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, discontentment, confusion with others or with God. But now your soul sits still within you because it has learned to trust God and depend on God for its needs. You see, now there is a peace because your soul has reposed within yourself. Internal strife is over because you have learned to trust Christ completely in every circumstance you're in. Your faith has now becoming, become a living, trusting faith. Contentment has come regardless of whether you have or have not met your desires. Do you and I rest secured, satisfied, and content in believing God's promises and accepting what God has given us? Look at Paul's example. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He noticed that his strength in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, depended upon God's abilities. In Philippians 4 verse 11, Paul said, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. In Hebrews 13 verse 5, and I just read this before to you, be content with what you have. The emblem here which David shows, like a weaned child upon his mother, is meant to illustrate the quiet, secure, safe trust that you and I must have in Christ as we live daily. And this is the process of spiritual weaning. And we all must go through it to grow in Christ. We were once noisy, and now we're quiet, just like that baby. So to gain godly contentment, you and I must capture our desires, our fears, and our anxieties and irritabilities. David did that in verse 1, and so can we as disciples of Christ today. Remember Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. As Christ would think, the Spirit of God has given us that wisdom to think. You know, the most comforting part for me in the Great Commission is not the part where it says, make disciples, though that is the command, and we're all called to do that, it's the very end of that Matthew 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you through the end of the age. Now, there was an old Indian, I come from India, so I use Indian analogies once in a while. There's an old Indian proverb that a washerman's dog, let me, let me recite it in Hindi, dhobi ka kutta na ghatka. In the old days, People didn't have washing machines, and even still, people, many people don't have washing machines. So if you were to wash your clothes, you would have a washerman come to your house, pick up your clothes, take it to the banks of a river, wash the clothes, and then bring them back to you. A, a dog, most washermen had companions. Now, the washerman's dog would go with the washerman, whether he was at the river or whether he was at 
a client's home. And the analogy brought through that small Indian proverb is, we're with the Lord, whether he takes us to a place of difficulty and challenges, or he takes us to a place where we are safe and secure. The Lord never leaves us. And I think that's the important point David is trying to bring about a weaned child, is a weaned child realizes that the Lord has not left, but the Lord is still there with him or her. We have so much to learn from the life of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, how he worked in full agreement with his Father's will, completely submitting himself and trusting himself to his Father's will. And even if that meant going to the cross and dying for the sins of all those who would trust in him. Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he was in a Roman house arrest. And he had no clarity on when he would be released. He didn't know his date when he would be out of prison. Can we unplug the noise-making, prideful attitudes of our life, our aspirations, our actions? I'm not suggesting (laughs) self-help. Or asking you to beat yourself up for your past mistakes or do any penance to mend your ways. All these are bound to fail. You need Christ and you need his help. And I need Christ and I need his help. We need the word of God to dwell inwardly in our souls and be ministered by the spirit of God. And he himself causes the flowing repentance heart attitudes. Contentment is learned quietness. And it takes effort. And it is our responsibility. But it is also a gift of God's grace. So the first lesson we just learned is that godly contentment results in a life of humility. And secondly, godly contentment is learned from trusting Christ fully. Verse 2. And the third lesson is godly contentment leads others to hope in Christ. That's verse 3. Now here, David gives you the reason. Inner quietness is not a retreat to self-centeredness. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Scripture is saying. Those who are content and trust in Christ encourage others to be secure in their faith in Christ. A contented person ministers to others and teaches others to put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to put their hope specifically in his second coming. It's interesting. If you look at this, this section of scripture. Verse 3. O Israel. Hope in the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. David is now pleading. For Yahweh to bring Israel into a state of hope. Towards himself. Why? Because in Yahweh there is loving kindness. And abundant redemption for them. And the Lord removes their iniquities. Look back in Psalm 130, the previous Psalm, verse 7 and 8. O Israel, same words, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he, the Lord, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will redeem is in the imperfect tense there, meaning specific future time. There is coming a time when the Lord will deliver his people Israel from all their sins once and for all. Accordingly, until then, every act of forgiveness, every deliverance is but a preview of that time. 
So Israel is called to trust in Yahweh to keep on hoping for his coming and his deliverance. And that hope has a present implication from this time for forever. This trust in God is strengthened when God's people are obedient to his word. You can find that even in Psalm 130 verse 5. Just move a few words, a few verses up. Psalm 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. We can also see how this connects back to the law in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, when Moses admonishes Israel that they must focus on what God has revealed to them and not on the secret things, which they don't know. Because he says the secret things belong to Yahweh. But the things which are revealed, which is his word, his promises, his statutes, belong to Israel. So they might obey. Now, Psalm 131, verse 3, by application, extends to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people who have put their hope and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. In His loving kindness, He has saved us. He has granted us redemptions from our sins. We are now to put our hope in the Lord now and forevermore. A repentant believer need never to lose hope Because God's loyal love that brings redemption is always present and active in their lives. God has made a way for us to be quiet in our souls like a weaned child. And that is by putting our hope not in this life, but in being faithful to obeying the scriptures and to look to his second coming. Isn't that what we are looking forward to? We should all be looking to the Lord's second coming and be content with God's providence while being faithful to obey our Lord. So, how are you and I doing? This psalm has laid us bare. Now, I've preached this psalm a few times and every time I go back, there's always something that comes out of my heart which needs to be dealt with. Um, Have you and I look deep into our lives to see if humility marks our inward bent? Have we learned contentment is a process that comes from a life of continued dependence upon the Lord? Do we lead others to that hope in Christ? Do we look to his word or help which we need? Do we wait on his second coming? The road to lasting contentment is hard, but the destination is very satisfying. You know, a few people know of the famous German hymn writer, Katharina Amalia Dorothea von Schlegel. In the 1700s, she wrote a hymn, and I think you know that, Be Still My Soul, about wrestling to compose and quiet her soul. This is, I believe, an extended personalization of Psalm 131, verse 2. Presumably written in the context of some great loss, which we do not know of. Before she died in 1768, she wrote 29 hymns. And only this hymn is the one that remains in common use. Let me read the words of this hymn as we come towards our close of our time. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. 
Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, your God doth undertake to guide the future as he has in the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And the last verse goes like this. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. You know, in the Gospels we read that the Lord came to his disciples walking on a stormy sea, And he has proven himself abundantly to meet the needs of so many of the storms in our life and uncertainties that life may bring. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, and he makes a metaphor of our life, and he says, for this momentary light affliction. That's his description of our life, as he described his life. is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, If you are sitting here and you're trying to aim at contentment without Christ, I will tell you up front, you will never receive it, regardless of what you try. Scripture says Satan has blinded your mind. And everyone here who does not know Christ is blinded twice by their own sin and by Satan. And I pray that the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God might be seen in the gospel. And the gospel is simple and easy to understand. Even a child can receive it. The gospel is Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man who came down to pay the price for your sin on the cross. And may Jesus Christ, who was sinless, grant you that gift of repentance and faith to believe on him through the process of changing you from the inside. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer. And may that day be that day for you. The Lord might save you today and grant you a joy-filled, contented life that comes by trusting Him every day as you walk through the challenges that this life might bring in faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be your lot today. Let's pray as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, You are truly the source of contentment in our lives. We live in a world that is growing corrupt by the day and rotting away. Help us to live each day with an unshakable childlike trust by faith in you 
through your word. Grant us a constant hunger for your word. May the nourishment we get from you as you minister the truth of the word in our lives stop that noise-making machine of our proud self-will so that we may gain a joyful and content life, not lacking but striving in your strength to please you in all that we do. And this we ask for our Master's sake, for whom we will see shortly. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.